Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, this session again this morning on Strength to Strength. Um, we're glad to invite Brother Conrad on this morning to speak on uh, trauma and uh, we uh, um, are grateful for this talk and we're excited to hear about it. Our, I think this morning one thing we'll learn is how fearfully and wonderfully we're made and uh, how intricate our brain is especially. So I'm excited to hear this and uh, turn the time over to him. First of all, we'll start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity again this morning. Thank you for the beautiful morning. Thank you for your goodness each and every day. Your your care that you take care of us and uh how you provide for us and sustain us through the journey of life. Lord, we face many different things. We face um, trials and tribulations and, and trauma of all sorts. We thank you, Lord, for um, how you provide for us in these times and, and for community of brothers that, and sisters that can surround us and help us. We thank you for... Um, Brothers like Conrad, who has done some study, some extensive study into this subject and uh, help him, Lord, just give him strength and uh, wisdom and calmness as he presents his uh, his uh, information and knowledge to us and how to to handle these things ourselves and how to help others. And help us, Lord, to be better equipped, to be a blessing to the people around us and to uh, um, be a help and an aid to each other as we journey through life. Go with us and bless this call this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we'll turn the time over to you, Conrad, and you go ahead and share. We'll have question and answer at the end. So the audience, you can be thinking of things to ask him or comment on. And uh, yeah, go ahead and uh, feel free to introduce yourself at the beginning, um, where you're from, and uh, maybe a little on how you how you uh, got into this uh, subject. So God bless. Hey, yeah, so uh, I'm Conrad Eby. Um, I'm married. My wife, Marilyn, I have uh, six children, one of which is um, not biological. Uh, she is a um, kind of a unique situation. We don't She's not adopted, but she's not really in the foster system. We just have kind of like a relationship with her mom. And uh, we do have full custody of her now. But she's lived with us for uh, going on nine years now. And she come from a very uh, traumatic beginning. So that's uh, my family. Um So some, a lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning is a, uh, something I've uh, related to personally. So uh, that's kind of what got me into this uh, 25 years ago. Uh, 
I got a point that I needed some help and I got help and it changed my life and kind of, uh, spurred my interest in to be able to pass on to somebody else what somebody did for me. So I'd started a long journey of studying and, um, over a period of, I think it took me 15 years, I obtained a master's degree in the science of professional counseling. So I am a, uh, a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Maryland. And I do, uh, some work, some clinical work, very part time. So, I still have a lot of connections in our family business and family work. I mean, so my time that I get to spend in clinic, clinical work is pretty limited, but um, I do have some exposure there on a clinical level. So that's kind of my uh, little bit about myself. <clears throat> So I don't know. I, I put a paper posted uh, handout online. I don't know how many of y'all got it, but it, it looks something like this. And uh, so we'll be looking some at that. And uh, I guess we'll just get right into it. Start off. I would like to start off with defining some of the terms. So uh, I think it was advertised as trauma, anxiety, OCD, and scrupulosity. So they kind of feed into each other oftentimes. Uh, OCD and scrupulosity it begins with something somewhat traumatic. So <clears throat> the term trauma, the way I want to define it, is not Trauma is not defined by what you see happening in the external world. So <clears throat> trauma needs to be understood by what happens internally inside of a person. So when you see something happen to a person or an experience a person goes through, and from the external world, you we make judgments. We say, well, that wasn't very serious or that wasn't very traumatic. Um, is not a good way to judge whether something's traumatic or not. What we need to understand is and explore is what the person actually experienced internally. Um, so for instance, there can be an accumulation of, of, uh, many somewhat minor things that accumulate and then eventually you get to a point where something puts them over the edge that doesn't seem uh, very traumatic to those looking on. But <clears throat> when you actually get inside the person, uh, you can discover there's there's many things that led up to the moment. Or it can be a huge one-time experience. Um and a lot of what determines whether a person is traumatized or not can depend on where they're at in life, where they're at in their development, 
you know, something can happen to a teenager that can rock their boat and that same thing could happen to somebody that's 40 years old and, and they just take it in stride. So, um, it's important to understand that, that what we're talking about is trauma is a significant disruption of a person's internal world, basically determined by what they experience in the, the emotions that surround that. Um, anxiety is a persistent extreme fear that tends not to want to go away. So after, so somebody experienced something traumatic and then the danger passes, but for some reason the person can't get rid of the sense of danger. So it just kind of hangs on. And oftentimes that feeling can feed into kind of tend to think into it and we can become fearful about many other things that weren't a part of the original fear. An obsession is a, is usually a thought that is accompanied with a strong feeling, a feeling of fear, guilt, uh, lust, uh, examples of that type of thing is like people get a feeling is feel like they're dying, um, cancer, germs, uh, what if situations. So, uh, we don't live in a very, uh, concrete world emotionally. So whenever you become weakened emotionally many things become ambiguous and we can start developing a lot of what ifs what what is you know is you know what's safe what's safe is my house safe is the house going to burn down is it i mean when you really stop and think about it we have no guarantee of the next second in of anything so uh, when we come, when our world gets rocked, suddenly we start seeing danger everywhere very, very easily. <laughs> A compulsion, so obsessive compulsive disorder, the obsession starts and then the feeling is so intense that w- without us even trying, the brain tends to come up with something to distract the brain from, from the intense feelings and pressure that is being created. So oftentimes the compulsion is a, another thought or an action that the brain jumps to, to distract it from the original Fear. So, for instance, um, checking, uh, washing, praying, excessive prayer. Um, you know, a person can pray, and in the moment they they get some relief, but then 
five minutes later, the feeling's back. So that they, they pray again, five minutes later, the feeling's back or, um, germophobia, like, um, 80% of people that have OCD at some point in their thing, they've done excessive hand washing. Uh, for myself, that was one of the first things that happened to me is that even as a child, when I was probably, I, I think I was in first grade, six, I got onto this thing of uh, germs and I washed my hands, washed my hands, washed my hands, that everything I would touch, I'd have to go wash my hands. And then I don't know, really can't really remember what broke me of that, except my hands got so chapped and cracked up and bloody that I just couldn't wash them anymore because it hurt too bad. And somehow I, I was able to stop that. Um, and scrupulosity is when this whole process gets wrapped up in spiritual teachings, understandings, practices. Um, well, I'll give the example of praying, uh, excessive prayer. A lot of times it can get wrapped up in uh, right or wrong. So, unfortunately, we live in a world that is, that is uh, tarnished. So it's like outside of Christ, obedience to Christ, we live in a, in a mixture, you know, a lot of times people will be like, um, they, they, they tell somebody something and then they're like, well, I didn't say it completely right. Does that mean I told a lie? And so then they go back and say, Hey, I missed this detail. I I didn't want to tell a lie. So I I got back and corrected that. And it gives them momentary relief. And then an hour or two later, it comes back. And then they feel like they have to go apologize again because they could have said it better. And um, the fear there is, 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 you know, if, if, if I told, if I'm guilty for telling a lie, you know, then I'm in danger of judgment of God and judgment of God is hell and, and you can terrify yourself in a heartbeat and then it can be difficult to get that fear to calm down. Um, <clears throat> so just a couple things. Why is trauma disrupting? But if you think about a traumatic incident, it sends a lot of different messages, whether you consciously think about it or not, but <clears throat> especially for children, so if something traumatic happens to a child, it can be very uh, disrupting because, um, you know, suddenly the world's not safe. Bad things happen quickly without expectation. Um lose some trust in mom and dad because they couldn't keep you safe. Um, it, it, it just can create a lot of distrust in life, especially if you're working with something that you know is dangerous 
and you prepare to be safe. And then the bad thing happens anyway. So, for example, um, I have a cousin that uh, her and her husband lived on a dairy farm. They had several children. And one Saturday morning, they were uh, doing moving some calves or something. They had a newborn calf. They put it in the bucket of the skid loader. And the dad was like, um, you know, he, for some reason they had to back up with the skid loader and the boy was driving and he was like, all right, you know, we need to, we need to be away so that, cause he can't see he's backing up. And, you know, he did the proper procedures to make sure all his children were safe. And the next incident, he turns around and there's his son run over. Nobody saw it happen. They don't really know what happened, but proper procedure was put into place and the bad thing happened anyway. And, um, something like that is so impactful that it can just, you can lose a lot of confidence in yourself because it's like, how can we be safe? You know, I even, I did the proper thing and the bad things still happen. Um, so it can be very disruptive. Uh, something, uh, trauma can cause, you know, physical alterations in our body, like, um, you know, a severe accident, somebody loses a limb or something. And then sometimes they have, uh, like uh, phantom pain. Well, that those phantom pains are constant triggers to, for that person to remember the original trauma. So they, so we had here in our business several years ago, we had a one of our employees get his arm in a uh, trim saw. That was a shaft with sprockets on and it pulled him, his arm, it caught his hood. He was leaning forward, caught his hood, pulled his arm into the shaft and just wrapped it up around the shaft like a rubber band and then ripped it out of his shoulder and, and, and tore his arm off. Well, his, he has a lot of phantom pain and he says, you know, sometimes it just feels like his arm's still in that, in that shaft. Um, so it's very, very hard for him to, I mean, he, he's almost dysfunctional because it's so debilitating and, uh, you know, he can't hardly leave his house because he, loud noises, car going past, whatever, you know, the whole thing, he's just constantly on edge. Um. So when this gets wrapped up in scrupulosity, you have a very sensitive person. Usually some of these things, OCD scrupulosity tends to plague very intelligent people and sensitive people. So some of our most gifted people in the world have been plagued with mental illness. I mean, you think about our, Composers like, uh, 
you know, uh, Beth Hoven, Van Brock, some of these guys were, they were literally half crazy, but they also had an extremely gifted side. <clears throat> but, um, so this scrupulosity thing, it, it's something that afflicts very, very good people and people that care extremely much about having a, a good relationship with God and they're concerned about what they do and what they don't do. And, and, um, the unfortunate thing is it, it can really be a plague. So just for an example of something that, so you have somebody that's has some trauma in their own edge and they're not sure why they had to experience what they've experienced. And they can, it's very easy to start to wonder, you know, is God punishing me? Is, is there sin in my life? Um, on and on. And so we start to explore. And we're like, well, what about this? What about it? Am I doing this right? Is this a good thing? How am I doing here? This and that. And we can very, very easily become distraught in our relationship with God because not because of of that we're doing anything wrong. It's just that We're uncomfortable because of an original trauma that hasn't been resolved and we project that into our relationship with God. And then we start exploring that for more reassurance when actually we need to go back and deal with the original thing. So you get a person in that state and then so there's talk, maybe they're giving a, a talk or they're having family devotions and they're reading out of scripture and they, they're reading, you know, something about God the Father and, you know, maybe a gnat flies in their mouth or something and they stumble on the word God and maybe it comes out sounding like gay or something. And this, you know, they can, Fear can fly into them. It's like, oh, I, I said a bad word for the name of God. And then they feel like they, maybe they blasphemed or this or that. And <clears throat> it can feed on itself. You know, it, it's not totally unreasonable. I mean, like the Jewish people, they won't say the word God because the possibility of being irreverent. And just to clarify here, this is not just an Anabaptist problem. I mean, this is a, actually all religions have people that struggle with spirit velocity. Um, it seems to me that the more ritualistic a certain way of practicing is the tendency 
for it to become more prominent. Um, I mean, Catholics are just great for it because, you know, you got to say 10 Hail Marys and five Our Fathers and this and that. And then people are saying 10 and 20 and 30 and not sure if they said enough. And they're saying again and again and again. And after a while, they're like, it just drives them nuts because they can't stop. Um, so let's look a little bit at the, uh, the handout I gave you. <clears throat> I drew it in a circle because I want to help you all understand what I call the feedback loop that makes OCD and scrupulosity so powerful. And <clears throat> so what happens is you have the initial trauma and that creates an internal pressure emotion and it moves from your it moves from your head into your body so what happens is your your brain understands something bad has happened and it moves from your brain into your body by we by causing us to tense up in our body so we immediately start uh, tensing up in our muscular uh, system. So <clears throat> when that happens, as soon as we uh, tense up, that allows our body to produce adrenaline and cortisol, which are stress chemicals. They get in our bloodstream <clears throat> and go directly to our brain and what that does it sends the message to the brain that what is what the brain is comprehending is extremely important and needs to be paid attention to so it ends up reinforcing the original understanding of the trauma so i have that in the right next to the circle line. So we start at the top. We have a traumatic experience. The experience moves from brain into the body. Uh, tense muscles allow the body to produce cortisol and adrenaline. The cortisol and adrenaline enters the bloodstream and travels to the brain. The adrenaline is telling the brain its fear is very important. Then I have that darkened area at the top that I like to th think of as a dam in our brain. Um, and the dam is what I think of as our ability to sit with the uncomfortable feeling of danger or stress. And to not think into it. So <clears throat> the stress hormones are telling the brain this is really important. So that the, 
So let's assume that the danger has passed. So let's say you almost had a car wreck. I don't know if you've ever had these experiences where you almost broadsided someone and whew, you just like want to pull off the road and just sit there and shake a little bit. But the danger passes and life is now safe again. But it takes a while for the adrenaline and, and cortisol to dissipate in our body. So there's going to be a space of time after a traumatic incident where you're not very comfortable because you still have all this adrenaline in your body and yet the danger has passed. So this damn idea is our ability to sit with that uncomfortableness till it leaves. If we don't, the tendency is to think into the danger. So for example, you have a mom that has a lot of mom anxiety and something almost happens and then she has this pressure in her because it produced this adrenaline and if she's not careful the first thing she'll think about is like that could have killed one of my kids and then the next thought is well, we would have had to have a funeral and the next thought is we would have buried him and the next thought is you know, I won't have my kid anymore. And it, and, and those thoughts are all produced out of something that happened that has passed. But the tendency is, is to think into it and catastrophize, we call it. So this process gets continued if we think into the anxiety. So it moves from initial experience into another level where now we're no longer afraid of the near accident. Now we're thinking about deaths and funerals and loss of life. And what does this cause? It causes more muscle tightening it causes more stress, causes more cortisol and adrenaline. It causes more reinforcement to the brain, and it results in more pressure and more anxiety. And then it can move from, I don't know, it can just get completely crazy. So let's move this into scrupulosity. So you have a traumatic experience. You have all this process of, you know, tense muscles, adrenaline, reinforcement to the brain. And you get back to the top where the dam is. With scrupulosity, the thought that 
we tend to get is why did this bad thing happen? And that's a bad question to ask. It's a really bad question to ask because it opens you up to innumerable, innumerable possibilities. But those of us who are Christian and, and, uh, care about our relationship with God, one of the first things that we tend to think is, is like, or we can think is, is that maybe God's speaking to me. And then the next thought is maybe there's something that's not right about my life. And the next thought is maybe, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And so we start exploring these things and we get temporary short-term relief. But as soon as we relax, it comes back with another fear, another possibility. Maybe I didn't make something right from years ago. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And so we start exploring those things and they give us momentary relief short term, but long term it gets worse. We get bigger fears and bigger fears and eventually we have ourselves going to hell and eventually we're unforgivable and eventually there's no hope. And there's been many Christians who have actually committed suicide because of, of scrupulosity. Um, it's, it's horrendously sad because it's, it's people that, that are very good people. I, I knew a lady, um, Um, what was her name? Her last name was Stolsvich. But <clears throat> single lady, and she struggled with this stuff. She talked to me about it one time, and uh, she thought she had gotten some help and was doing pretty good. And then I had, didn't hear out of her for a couple of years, and I found out she was in uh, Green Pastures, and she walked off and walked right into a farm pond of some sort over there and drowned herself. And her sister has shared a journal of the last several weeks of her life. And it's just horrendous. The, the uh, torment her brain was in because uh, she just couldn't get relief. And she thought, you know, her brain started thinking into it. And by the way, this thing of thinking into it sometimes is like beyond our control. So if the pressure is so great that our dam or our ability to sit with the stress is not strong enough, The, the thoughts that come to think into it actually become intrusive. So it's, it's like people will express it like 
their mind thinks before they think. So like without even trying it, I mean, boom, God hates me. It And they're like, where did that thought come from? And it, it wasn't. And so then they're, they struggle with that thought. And then that leads to more thoughts and more thoughts and more thoughts. And the more they fight it, the more you fight it, the worse it gets because we become attracted to the thing we're afraid of. So it's very, very crucial to, to help a person calm down because it only gets worse. More prayer, more Bible reading, more, more, more. It just drives a person. When you have scrupulosity, direct spiritual intervention can make it worse. And, <clears throat> uh, I just had a, a Mennonite girl for a client and she had a mental breakdown of some sort related to some of this stuff. And so they, they took her out of the home she was in, sent her to a friend's house, another state away. The friends told her that her problem was all spiritual. They put her in a bedroom upstairs with nothing in it but a bed and a Bible and said, your problem is you haven't prayed enough. You're not close enough to God. Stay in this room with your Bible till you get better. And they brought her food and so on and so forth. But very good intentions, but cruel, cruel as can be. And when those type of people come to see me, I just get, I have a really big struggle with rage. Um, I just, I just want to take people and, and, and it just makes me want to choke people sometimes. And it, it, the sad thing, it's all good intentioned and everything, but it's just like no comprehension of what's going on in the brain. Um, and I just want to say this here, and, and you all might not agree with it. It might be a new thought to you, but <clears throat> all the spiritual realities that we experience with God, and this blows my mind about God, how humble he is. But God submits his spiritual work in us to the, un- he submits it to the understanding of our brain. So even the miraculous, something supernatural that happens, if it's, <clears throat> if it's not comprehended by our brain, it, it doesn't do anything. So somebody that uh, doesn't have mental capacity, their ability to experience a spiritual life with God is is diminished, right? So 
God, the work that God does in us is, is, uh, subject to our brain functioning correctly. So if your brain is not working correctly, um, you're just, it's just tough. And, and, and sometimes we need to work on our, our, our physical components and get them working correctly. And some, then the spirituality can work itself out. And it's just amazing to see it happen when somebody comes into your office and they're sure they're going to hell and, and blah, 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 blah. And you help them relax and, and start looking at it from a different approach. And when their brain starts working correctly, suddenly their thoughts start working right. They start being able to comprehend and make decisions and stick with a decision. I've had people come in that, and this was a Catholic boy. He had been uh, sexually molested by a priest. And he's like, I give it to God a thousand times a day. And he said, for some reason, God just keeps giving it back to me. And so when we started looking at it through this type of understanding, suddenly you get the adrenaline to stop. You get the cortisol to stop. The brain calms down and starts functioning properly. Suddenly they can make a decision and that decision can last, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours a day before they have to relive it. Um, so how much time do I have left? Uh, so it's 6.43. Carry on. However, however long you feel, brother. So I, I want to move into how to stop this circular problem. And if you notice on the diagram, I have little X's marked around this circle. So the X represents breaking up the feedback loop. So... <clears throat> A number one understanding of helping people with this problem is, is that you cannot have stress in a relaxed muscle body. So the key to not, to the body not producing adrenaline and cortisol is relaxation. So I tell people over and over to start fighting with their body instead of their head. Because their brain is maxed out, it's it's tired, it's not working correctly, and <clears throat> there's too much adrenaline and cortisol going on. So the key is is relaxation to stop the adrenaline and cortisol. So I teach people muscle relaxation techniques, like uh, one I call a wet noodle, where you just sit back in a chair or couch and just 
flop. Let your head flop. Let your arms flop. Let your legs flop. Get everything loosened up. And just breathe deeply. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever done birthing classes with your wife and they teach you breathing techniques. That can be very helpful. If the, if the anxiety is too high, lots of people don't feel like breathing does much for them. So I've developed some what I call more aggressive breathing techniques, which is the one I call just push out breathing where you just push out your breath and just push out and push out and push out till you just can't push out anymore and then hold it for 10, 15, 20 seconds, whatever you can do. And then breathe in slowly and then do another push out. Just as if you do push out breathing within five breaths, five big push out breathing, where you push out all you can push out, you can literally change how you feel in your chest. <clears throat> and you'll start feeling warm feelings going down your arms and some things like that. And they've literally done, uh, you know, in the past, it was always like people's like, breathe, breathe. And everyone's like, yeah, really, it's just, you know, you're just distracting me, whatever. It's not doing nothing. But there is neuroscience now that proves that breathing can help drastically. So <clears throat> with um, with the uh, epilepsy, there is too much random electrical impulses in our brain and they concentrate on particular areas. So lots of times there's a little nodule on the brain or something that attracts it in, in the electrical impulses concentrate there and cause seizures. <clears throat> so they do brain imagery and then they go in there and remove that spot and it helps. But <clears throat> there's a lot of people that they don't find any sort of brain abnormality. So they've started doing uh, a procedure where they open up the side of the person's head and they have um, electrical impulse sensing pads that they lay directly on the brain. And then they keep that person in the hospital for like seven days and they monitor the electrical activity in that person's brain and they can detect where the high concentration is that it's causing the seizures and then they can remove part of that and, and help that. Well, they've discovered, so they have these people in the hospital for seven days doing this study. They have time on their hands and whatnot. So students and whatnot like to talk to them and they, they've done experiments where they do breathing exercises <clears throat> with these people and they're hooked directly up to monitoring systems and they you can reduce the electrical activity in your brain through breathing so your heart and lungs function on electrical impulses and there's two nerves they're called vagus nerves that grow from your chest cavity to your brain and there's a direct connection between your breathing and heart rate and the electrical activity that's going on in your brain. So part of what happens is a person gets in trauma and anxiety 
their heart rate picks up, the electrical activity in their chest picks up, and it stimulates the electrical activity in your brain. And it, the brain literally can, you can think of it as your brain is buzzing, you know, and there's too much electrical activity going on in your brain, which feeds into the problem of, of thinking into the anxiety and the, in the, uh, the, uh, intrusive thoughts. <clears throat> so I just like to point out here about the intrusive thoughts is, is that I don't know if you've all heard of, of people with schizophrenia that hear voices. Well, they've also done brain studies on them. And, and when a person is hearing voices, there is no brain activity in the hearing part of the brain. All the activity is in the thinking part. So to me, when a person is hearing voices, it's, it's the extreme, uh, it's an extreme part of an intrusive thought. So it's just an, when a person hears voices, it's the next level beyond an intrusive thought. So, <clears throat> Um, it's very disturbing because it seems real to that person, but it's actually just extreme brain activity. So, um, well, I'm going over things that can be helpful to, to slow the brain down. And the breathing exercises literally have science behind them now that proves that you can reduce the, the electrical activity in your brain, which can slow down the thinking. I, I don't know how many people tell me that their, their, their thoughts are just racing. Like they just can't stop thinking. And it's just by lunchtime, you know, they're exhausted mentally. And, you know, they just want to stop and, and the only way they can get it to stop is to go to sleep. Um, because they, they just can't get their brain to just stop. It just wants to, it's just buzzing. It's basically what it amounts to. So <clears throat> sometimes when a person comes to you and they have guilt, anxiety and, they feel like they're going to hell. Sometimes you just need to sit down with them and help them calm down. And then their brain can start working properly. And they're like, yes, I do believe in Jesus. Yes, I, I've done the things that I need to do to be right with God. And their brain can start working right again. But, <clears throat> You know, I'm just going to put this plug in there that hell is a very scary thing, especially to children. And it's very easy to take children to revival meetings or whatever, and they get caught up in trying to understand what hell is and on and on. It's very, very easy 
for people to get scrupulosity and traumatized by things that Well, some things are for adults and some things are for children. So there's, there's many things in life that we don't expose our children to because it's inappropriate at their age and can cause them problems. And I, I just would like, I'm just, just make a suggestion just for y'all to think about it, is to be careful how much religious drama you expose your children to. There's people that have extreme problems trying to come to rest spiritually and some of it is a result of trauma. And we can traumatize people spiritually. So I don't want to make harsh comments about it because I don't know what to do about it all sometimes. I mean, life's hard. Life's hard. We can't, um, we can't make a perfect world and I guess the best we can do is is help one another along so I guess that's all I have for this morning all right well thank you brother I uh, really appreciate you for coming on and sharing this with us. Uh, I could relate to a lot of it. Um, I think a lot of us probably face some of this, just some to a greater degree. And uh, especially in our formative years growing up, I would have experienced probably in in milder ways what, what you were discussing this morning and the trauma and how your brain uh, processes these things. And uh, it's so good for us to understand this stuff as we relate to others who have gone through traumatic experience and as we relate to our own uh, children and youth growing up in our own homes to uh, help them establish good, healthy thinking patterns. So, yeah, we're going to open it up for uh, uh, questions and comments now, and I'll just kick it off with with one here. And I I heard... uh, some some of these um, points along the way of helpful tips and stuff, and I really appreciate that. And I, I just wondered some more. Yeah, what are some what are some good ways we can just show support and care for folks going through these traumatic experiences? I mean, obviously, if it's if it's severe, they should seek um, professional help and uh, someone that understands this stuff. Um, but I think all of us want to be a help and a support where we can. So how can we walk through uh, 
these difficult times with them and, and help them as they journey through these difficult times. Well, one thing I would say is, is to help them with their dam, um, to sit with them in their stress and help them uh, endure that stress rather than thinking into it. Um, so the, aside from relaxation and muscle relaxation and stopping the adrenaline and cortisol, one of the number one treatments for uh, anxiety and OCD is exposure. So <clears throat> you expose yourself in small incremental pieces to the original trauma or anxiety. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They think that, oh, if we revisit the trauma, it's just going to make the trauma worse, blah, blah, blah. That's exactly not the way it is. You have to expose yourself to the thing that you're afraid of so you can sit with it. So <clears throat> that's why old people are comfort more comfortable with death than young people is because they've walked beside the possibility of death for 70 years to the point that they can sit on the edge of, the, of death and they're they're fine. But for a 20 year old who hasn't exposed himself to that for that long period, he still has a lot of anxiety of death. For, that's just one example. So <clears throat> exposure, exposure, exposure in small, measurable, handleable doses. So, you know, if you're afraid of death, person has anxiety they feel like they're dying whatever well the more comfortable you get with death the better you can live like if i'm scared of death and i look death in the face and say you know what i'm going to embrace my own death <laughs> i mean fear has no power so you have to accept the thing that you're afraid of so this is mind-blowing but <clears throat> in the old testament when the snakes were biting the children of israel they said they come to Moses and say, Moses, go to God, see if he can call off these snakes. Well, what did God tell Moses to do? He said, go out and make yourself a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and tell them if they look at it, they'll be healed. Well, the the psychological lesson behind that is, and it's something that is a doctrine of psychotherapy, is is that you expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of. So there's all kinds of snakes in the world figuratively that want to get us. But the worst of all snakes is in inside our own hearts in our own fears and anxieties. And we have to look them in the eye. We have to look at the snake and then the snake just goes away. <clears throat> and I could talk for another hour on this subject, but Jesus said, I have to be lifted up as that snake was in the wilderness. And there's a lot of, it's just mind blowing the, the, what he's saying when he says that. And I, I don't have time to go into that, but the thing of exposure is, is very important. 
help the person help the person ex- expose themselves. I mean, if they're afraid of how, I mean, and this sounds crazy, but <clears throat> I I got all up in this Tripolasi stuff when I was a teenager, and then it was like. I felt like I was unforgivable when I was just felt constantly felt like I was going to hell, no matter how much I prayed, how much I tried to believe, whatever. And finally I told God, I'm like, you know what? Even if you send me to hell, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to trust in you. And that was the beginning of some relief. Mm-hmm. And that's that whole, that's just a traumatic experience to go through. But, and, it's kind of like lifting weights. So you, somebody drops 500 pounds on you and tells you to put it above your head. You can't do it. But if you break that weight down in small incremental weights of 25, 50 pounds and you lift it and you lift it and you lift it and you lift it, you can gradually add more weight. And you can handle more. You can strengthen your, your dam and your ability to carry stress. Hmm. All right. I uh, very much enjoyed that that uh, answer. There's probably <clears throat> many times we can uh, reach out and help these people that are going through these things and walk with them. So thanks for that. So anyone else? Let yes. Uh, I have uh, three points to address uh, after I say what a uh, informative presentation this was. Thank you. Um, number one. Uh, has anybody entertained the idea that Martin Luther was subject to scrupulosity? Uh, number two, could you demonstrate the breathing technique? And number three, um, is it been demonstrated that, uh, exercise that, uh, dem- makes cardiovascular demands can be of value in addressing these issues? Well, yeah, absolutely. Martin Luther suffered from OCD, scrupulosity. Um, many, many of our gifted uh, people, spiritually and secularly, uh, have suffered. And part of what <clears throat> part of what makes them so powerful is is that they're propelled in life to overcome their snakes. So if they relax and just be normal, the snakes overcome them. So they're, it actually propels them to be very, very functional people. So anxiety is not all bad. It's, it's actually a very part, good part of, of making us functional with, it just needs to be, uh, in its place when when anxiety gets too big it, it starts interfering with our quality of life um i don't know if that totally answers your question or not um the exercise thing is is absolutely a good process <clears throat> uh exercise burns adrenaline and cortisol. <clears throat> so 
20 minutes of vigorous exercise at least three times a week can be very good for a person's mental health. And more than that won't hurt. Um, as far as demonstrating the breathing thing, <clears throat> this is, this is how I do it. I just get out, 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 out. Do that five times and it'll literally change the way you feel. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Very good. Anyone else? Yes, I have a question. All right. Nothing was mentioned about medication, like in extreme cases, possibly when the mind is so uh, locked up or stressed, whatever, to help the mind relax with medication. What What is your thought on that? I wanted to avoid that snake. <laughs> now, uh, I'm not against medication. Um, it can be extremely helpful. Uh, actually, OCD is, uh, very, very much a, um, influenced by neurochemicals. So one of the main ones is serotonin <clears throat> and we have a class of medications called SSRIs, which is serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And, uh, wow. I don't know. Maybe you guys should just schedule another one that I can do neurochemicals, but explain how that all works. But, um, our brain has something called <clears throat> serotonin reuptake. So when brain cells communicate with each other, the one cell emits a neurochemical, let's say serotonin, and the cells are not directly connected. There's a space between the cells that we call the synaptic cleft, and that neurochemical floats across the synaptic cleft and is picked up by a receptor site on the next cell. And some of these, just to give you an idea how complicated this is, some of these neurochemicals are shape Pacific. So when they float across the synaptic cleft and the next neuro cell picks it up, that cell has to have a receptor site that is properly shaped to be able to pick up that neurochemical. So there's many, 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 many things that can go wrong in that process. But one thing they've discovered is, is let's say serotonin is released from one chemical and it floats across the synaptic cleft. Let's say it has problems being picked up by the next cell. It floats around in the synaptic cleft for a period of time. And if it's not picked up, the original cell that released it has a reuptake system that reabsorbs that chemical back into itself. 
And what they've discovered is, is that they can slow down that reuptake system. So it results in more of the serotonin neurochemicals to be floating around in the synaptic cleft to be picked up by the next cell. And it increases the probability of that communication happening. So if you have one side of your brain that's saying yes and another side of your brain that's saying no, if the neurochemicals associated with the yes side, let's say they're it's not producing enough of them or their shapes a little bit, not the way it should be. And for some reason, that communication is not happening. The no side of your brain will be way stronger. So <clears throat> you have people that are doubtful. They just have a doubtful nature. That can be because the the doubting side of their brain is is more producing a, a chemical that is working better. Um, so when you go to make a decision, we consider the pros and cons of any decision, right? And if if the the con side is weaker than the pro side, or either way, in in a neurochemical analogy it can result in a personality that tends to be doubtful and and that can feed into this whole scrupulosity thing you know people can pray and they come to a rest and then you know five minutes later they're anxious again and it, it's just like <clears throat> Things just don't, the recipe that we give them just doesn't seem like it works correctly or like it should. And, and sometimes it's, it's a neurochemical thing. <clears throat> and, you know, the SSRIs are a very safe medication. They're non-addictive. They're um, very helpful. They're inexpensive. Um, there's one called uh, citalopram that is very good for OCD. It's $4 at Walmart for a prescription. So um, it's accessible. Um, I'm not a... I don't like for medication to be the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth, you know, or even a mental illness diagnosis of OCD or scrupulosity. I mean, I've seen a professional for a whole year before he told me that he thought maybe I had OCD. So I appreciate uh, rigorous work being done. And medication is not a miracle cure. I mean, some people it's very ineffective. Some people it's very effective. Some people it's just helpful. Hmm. 
Very good. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so we had a couple questions coming on the chat here and I'll just share them with you. And as you, as we can all hear, this is a very large subject. So maybe we'll wrap this up after these two here. We'll have to get you on again and, and explore this further. So the first question here by Mike Weaver says, I've never dealt with a situation like this personally, but I have heard of suicide cases where some of the closest family members didn't know the person was struggling. What are some surface level signs such as comments people might make that would help us to identify that someone might be dealing with depression or scrupulosity that could potentially lead to suicide or self-harm? Wow. Well, I'll tell you right now, somebody with OCD, you will know it. Um, And it's, I would say it's fairly unusual for somebody with OCD to kill themselves because actually people with OCD are usually pretty harmless. Uh, They're actually usually some of the nicest, politest, kindest people you'll ever meet up with. Um. It can lead to depression, though, uh, you know, if they can't get out of it. And the depression would be what would lead a person to suicide. If a person doesn't have depression and they just have anxiety and OCDs, they will usually start um, backing out of life. Like they they won't go to town, they won't go to Walmart, they won't go to church, they won't go here, they won't go there because there's germs or there's not cleanliness or and people will literally uh get to the point where they can't come out of their room. Like because um, they're you know, you have to give them food under the door because if they open the door up, you know, germs are gonna come in or something. So usually people with OCD are not dangerous. The person that, that doesn't, um, show signs is the person that has depression and has learned to act like they don't. And that can be difficult. Um, but usually I, I just like to think that if there's some level of appreciation for emotion and feelings and, and care that a person would reach out. I, I have a hard time believing that there's not any indications. I mean, I know people say that, you know, you got to watch the person that doesn't talk. The person that threatens suicide usually don't do it. And the person that doesn't just as often does it. There's some truth to that, but. I, I think it's just usually a level of denial in a family that claims that there's no indication. All right. Last question here yet. Uh, when there is someone that's always making sure he's right and correcting everyone around him, <clears throat> uh, what is he dealing with and how can we walk with him?
Well, usually when somebody's trying to correct everyone around them, they're trying to be in control. And why do people need to be in control is because they feel like they're out of control. So help that person understand that they're safe and that we love them and that they're cared for and they don't need to be, they don't need to be fighting all the time to make sure everything is okay. Very, very good answer. I appreciate that. Um, a lot of these things can be helped and uh, healed and avoided by just a loving, caring family and church family around to uh, all, this, all this stuff boils down to security and relationships and actually knowing each other and God mm-hmm. and on an experiential level you have to actually feel love you have to feel cared for the the root of all this all this problem is empowered by emotion. So it's a feeling. What What is the person feeling that actually is behind the behavior? But the problem is <clears throat> it can develop layers. It can become layered. So, you know, the person's struggling with whether they told a lie or not. So you, you help them understand that what they said was not a lie. But that really wasn't the problem. That was a symptom of a deeper fear. So it can become layered and layered. And that's why in therapy, you know, it can be a long-term process. It's kind of like peeling the layers off of an onion. Mm -hmm. That's right. Very good. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap this up, but uh, I think it uh, whets our appetite and we may ask you back on. So, Justin, if I may interrupt here, uh, could you take one more question that came in through the chat? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> we, can, we can address this one yet. Yeah, sure. All right. From Rustin Wilson, this may be a question for the next talk, but I would like to hear how we can, we as a community can destigmatize OCD and other thought disruptions when a person has internalized a message such as This is unresolved sin, I am defective, I am abnormal, or it is too embarrassing to talk about. Sometimes a person may feel that everyone will see me differently if they know my problem. Yeah, it's a very real, real question. So, I, yeah, I have to be careful what I say sometimes. Um, Dig out of this one, Conrad. Because <laughs> this is actually a problem of the people that think that they're well. And we're not well. Nobody is. And we need to adopt the position of Alcoholic Anonymous that you can't be a part of this group unless you admit that you're an alcoholic. And we can't be a part of the Christian community unless we admit that we're a sinner. And we need to 
own that we're broken and sinful. And this is one of the biggest problems of the Anabaptist community is that we have a spiritual pride that we. Um, or arrogance. Well, we 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 have figured out what is right and we know how to live and 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 we don't. I mean, at the end of the life, <clears throat> if we're not presented to the Father faultless because of Jesus Christ, um, you know, we have to have a, a level of humility that we are all broken and incomplete on some level. <clears throat> and if, you know, Yeah, maybe I'll just stop there. I, it can get, I, 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 you have to be careful though, because you can't just become this compassionate, um, oh, let me share my feelings with you. I mean, you can get, yeah, I mean, there comes a time you gotta toughen up, man. I mean, and so I'm not, I don't want to totally advocate for just a, <clears throat> a childish <clears throat> um, love to love you. Uh, oh, don't do this because that's going to hurt their feelings. This, that, the other thing. I mean, them baby feelings got to go. You got to grow up. But... <clears throat> At the same time, when somebody is struggling, um, you have to meet them where they're at. And yeah, it's difficult. But the problem with the stigma is with those who are well. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, been enjoying all this um, question and answer time. Well, uh, we're 23 after seven, so we should wrap this up, but hey, I'm going to open it up for any pressing comment that someone wants to make or question, quick question yet, and then we'll close this up. All right. Well, uh, thank you, brother, for sharing. And, uh, uh, like, uh, we were saying, we'll have to, uh, address more of this subject it's it's near and dear to many of our hearts um there's a lot of people suffer in unique ways uh with these things and and experiences traumatic experiences in their lives and i think we as communities that want to follow jesus want to just learn how to show care and compassion to everyone especially going through these uh yeah, dark, dark times in their lives um, and prevent tragedies from happening. So thank you, brother. All right. Uh, would you mind leading us in closing prayer yet? And then I'll uh, share a few announcements after that. Sure. Father God, we come to you again today. Just extremely thankful for your care for us. And that many times you come to us in a variety of ways. And we thank you for all the times that you come to us through other people. And 
we pray that you would help us to develop these uh, relationships and to be able to sit with one another and listen to one another and hear each other's hearts. Help us to not uh, hurt each other unintentionally. Help us to uh, seek each other's good and well-being. We thank you for Jesus as the great example of all this. And we thank you for him embracing the cross and giving us an example of how to to face difficult things and help us to be able to face the difficulties of life. I thank you for each one of the people in this group and I pray that whatever was said could be a blessing and I pray that you'll go with us through this day and many days that you give us ahead. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again, brother. And uh, in two weeks, we uh, look forward to meeting again. And we're going to um, ask a brother, we're going to name Marvin, to talk about the power of the kingdom realized through weakness. And uh, looking forward to that. So welcome you all back in two weeks. And in the meantime, go with God. And uh, God bless you all on your journey and whatever you face. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.